I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, and uh, we're getting closer and closer to that great day, the day when Hashem gave B'nai Israel, the Jewish people, the Torah. And of course, as we said in many classes, when we celebrate a Jewish holiday, we're not just celebrating historical events, events that happened a long time ago. We are also recognizing that there's a spiritual energy in the world that was created because of those events that come around every year at that time and are much more accessible to be tapped into. So this period of time that we've been in has been the period between Pesach and Shavuot, the counting of the Omer, 49 days, counting up from where we began coming out of Egypt. Interestingly, they brought a barley offering at the beginning of the Omer. And at the end of the Omer, we end by bringing a wheat offering. And this is part of the symbolism of the fact that we went from a more animalistic place when we came out of Egypt. We were undeveloped, raw, if you like, almost indistinguishable from the Mitzrayim. And as we know, had we stayed one second more, we would have been irredeemable. We would have sunk to the 49th, what's called the 49th level of Tuma, of spiritual impurity. And Hashem took us out very quickly. And this transformation, we're told, takes these 49 days of counting up. You know, going from the negative 49 to the or the negative one to the positive one, from the negative two to the positive two, literally stepping out of the muck and every day coming to a new place, a new. And, and this is the time that the Jewish nation is being formed. And each one of us has the opportunity during this time period to refine and develop ourselves in ways that are um, maximal during this time. And we end with Shavuot bringing a wheat offering because wheat, flour, always represents human endeavor. And it's a higher type of offering than barley, which was always considered animal food. So wheat and the whole process of making bread, etc., shows the mastery of human beings over the earth. And also because it involves so much, so many processes. It's the idea that we've been involved in, so to speak, molding and, uh, you know, um, creating ourselves in a sense during this time. We know that the very first human being, Adam Harishon, he's called the Chala of the world. He was created from the dust, as you know, and there's a whole imagery of Hashem needing him and making him into, so to speak, the first Chala. So this idea of the likening of bread and flour and wheat and that process to human endeavor and human refinement comes all the way back from that source. In our last class, we were speaking about 
hod, and we were speaking about the mida of anava. Anava means humility. And we're told that this, this mida, this character trait of anivus or uh, humility is really the foundational mida for all good midot. That, that it's, the, it's the source for all good character traits. And of course, it's a very difficult mida to attain because the natural posturing of a human being from the moment they're born is egocentricity, selfishness, me, 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 right? From the moment we're born, the spotlight's on us. And as one of my teachers said, our goal in life is to take the spotlight off of me and shine it onto other people. And somebody said it was Lubavitcher Rebbe, but I'm not sure who said it. That the definition of humility is not thinking about yourself less, sorry, not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less, thinking about yourself less, right? In other words, being more other-centered, not being totally consumed by your own needs, your own this, I need this, I want this. They say that a child comes into the world with their hands clenched. Gimme, 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 gimme. And of course, when we leave the world, our hands are spread open. Because number one, we know we can't take anything with us. But it's also the idea that, you know, we should be spending our life trying to be other-centered, giving to others. So it's interestingly, a source in the Torah is actually in the, in the book of Devarim, which is called the Mishnah Torah. It's the fifth book of the Torah. And it's really a review, so to speak, of the four books before, in which Moshe is gathered all the people together, and he's reviewing with them where they went wrong, where they went right. He's giving them his last speech before he knows that he has to leave them. And one of the things that he says is he says, Anochi omed bein Hashem uvenechem, ba'etahi. Okay, and what, what that means is he was saying, I was standing between God and you, the Jewish people, during that time when God was giving the Torah. I was the go-between, between you and the Jewish people, uh, between you and God. But the word that he uses, which is interesting, the word for I usually is the word ani, right? That's the common word. But he uses the word anochi, which is actually, uh, it's, it's a different word. It's actually the word that the, ben, that the Ten Commandments begin with. But in terms of, the, of what we're speaking about, the concept of anochius, meaning self-absorption, right? Me, 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 anochius, right? It's the, the Baal Shem Tov said that the reason why, Mo, why this word is used here in the Torah is because Moshe is alluding to this idea again, that I'm standing between you and the Torah, but really the Baal Shem Tov says the word Anochi is used because it's your Anochius that stands between you and your getting the Torah. In other words, your self-absorption, your um, inability to see others and see Hashem, so to speak, 
is what gets in the way of your being able to become a vessel, to become a vessel that's able to properly receive the Torah. So it's just a beautiful source, again, for this concept that anochius or self-absorption is what feeds all bad vetoes. Of course, all good meat are uh, coming from the opposite, like we said, being other-centered or being selfless. And, you know, um, on Shavuos, we read the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, the, the main characters there are Boaz and Naomi. And, of course, Ruth is the star of the show, right? The convert par excellence. But that book is read to also teach us what is needed to be able to be able to receive the Torah the way that Ruth did. As you know, the letters of the word Ruth, root, resh, vav, taf, um, equal 613. Sorry, sorry, equal 606. Because Ruth, as a non-Jew, already had the seven mitzvahs b'nei Noach. But when she became a Jew, obviously, she took all the other ones on. And so the name Ruth um, shows that. The letters of the gematria of the word Ruth. Or Rus. Anyway, we learn from Rus, obviously, self-sacrifice. We learn the ability to submit to subjugate oneself in order to be able to receive the Torah, to get out of the way, so to speak, to get our anochias, our self-absorption out of the way. Again, not only to be able to see other people, but in terms of receiving the Torah, to be able to see what does Hashem want? What does Hashem need from me? How do I have to make myself smaller so that other people are bigger, right? We spoke about that beautiful Pasuk in Tehillim. Guard me like the pupil of the eye that we see ourselves in another person's eye. The word for pupil is Ishon, a little man, a little person. Because you see yourself as you should see yourself, smaller than the one that you're talking to, as opposed to larger. So this also applies in terms of our relationship with Hashem. Asking Hashem, what do you want from me? How can I move over? How can I, you know, get out of my comfort zone to be able to do more for you, right? As much as Hashem is perfect and he doesn't need anything, obviously there are ways that he needs us in order to be able to perfect the world. And that should empower and give us a sense of importance in the proper way. That's where our, so to speak, holy chutzpah and arrogance should come from, that we've got this tremendous job that we have to accomplish. So we certainly need, uh, you know, to fuel ourselves with a certain um, uh, positive type of pride to be able to do our job, because it's a lot. But anyway, just to go on. So again, in the book of Ruth, there's uh, many factors that are integral to acquire Torah that we learned there. But another place that we learned is just before the Jewish people 
arrive at Har Sinai. So if we look at a Pasuk in uh, Sefer Shemos, Parsha's Yisro, right, the Parsha of Yitro, it says there, and I'm going to be quoting the Or HaChayim, which is a commentator on the Torah. So there's a line that says, they journeyed from Rafidim. It's talking about the Jewish people. They journeyed from a place called Rafidim. And they arrived at the wilderness of Sinai, at Midbar Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. And then it goes on with the famous one that we many people know. And Israel encamped there, Neged Hahar, opposite the mountain. Okay, in Hebrew, so the Or HaChaim says that in, these, in this verse, we can learn the three requirements that one needs to be able to be Mekabel, the Torah. And again, some of this will be a little bit of a repeat of what I said, but another source. So the first idea is Rafidim. First of all, you know, the Torah is very terse. It doesn't put extra words in it unless there's a reason. What do we need to know? They went from Rafidim and they came to Har Sinai. We know they were in Rafidim. We know they left. Why is it repetitive? So what the Orachim is saying, again, is because embedded in these words, right, whenever we have a question in Torah, it's like, or wherever there's an inconsistency or extra words that we don't need, it's Hashem's way of saying, dig here. Stop and start digging. Because in these words, you will find treasures. You will find lessons for living. You will find here how to be Mekabal the Torah. So again, back to that word Rafidim, which actually comes from the word weakness. They came from a place of weakness. Okay, they came from a place of weakness or what uh, Rashi calls Rifayon Yadayim. Their hands were weak. Now, in terms of the events of what happened at Rafidim, that's where we were attacked by Amalek. And the reason that we were attacked by Amalek, we're told, is because we were weak in our study of Torah. Now, the first question you have to ask is, wait a second, we didn't even get to Mount Sinai yet. You know, what, what Torah? But we know that the Jewish people are already being given the mitzvot in the desert. One of the mitzvot that they already were given was Shabbat, the keeping of Shabbat. Even bris milah, circumcision, right, was something that we were given as we were leaving Egypt. So there were certain mitzvot that were given to us even before we got the Torah as a complete entity. So it's saying that when we were in Rafidim, we were weak, meaning the study of our Torah was weak. And whenever that happens, there's a hole where the anti-Semites, you know, uh, being represented by the ultimate anti-Semite, Amalek, right? The same way the Jewish people are called first in terms of their ability to reach Kedusha, holiness or the first in terms of being like the firstborn child of Hashem in the family, Amalek are also called the first in terms of their desire to eradicate Kedusha in the world, to eradicate anything to do with 
morality, certainty of God's existence, to create suffix and doubt. So whenever the Jewish people, and this holds true today, whenever we're weak in our Torah learning, we are targets. We create a, an opening for the anti-Semites of the world to destroy us. So when the Pasuk is telling us they traveled away from Rafidim, they're talking about this idea that as you come closer to being able to be Mechabal the Torah, you're going through this process of strengthening yourself. You have to strengthen yourself. How do we strengthen ourselves? Well, we strengthen ourselves by learning Torah, right? We strengthen ourselves by recognizing that we have a mission in this world and knowing who we are and what we're supposed to accomplish individually and as a people and knowing that Hashem is counting on us. So this is how they strengthened themselves. They had to leave Rafidim before they could get to Har Sinai. They had to literally um, decide, right? And there is a, there's many, many um, places where Chazal tell us that, you know, to be able to be um, successful in Torah learning, right? Even today, they say you have to kill yourself over it. It's not something that's acquired easily. It's something that, again, needs strengthening before you can acquire it. You need to be willing. We're going to talk a little bit about that. You need to be willing, again, the humility that is needed is the ability to self-sacrifice, to give up certain comforts. You know, a, a person who goes and learns Torah all day long, sincerely, it's like they're going to war every day. They have to strengthen themselves. They have to sharpen their swords. They have to be able to engage in that battle. But each one of us on our own level, there's a certain strengthening that has to come and a certain recognition that Torah comes with self-sacrifice. Again, back to the Megillah of Ruth. We know that Ruth came from nobility. She was a, a princess in the land of Moab the daughter of Eglon, the king there. She left everything behind, all of her riches, all of her status, to follow Naomi barefoot and poverty-stricken, disdained by her people for having left, for, for having left Eretz Yisrael in a moment of, of tremendous need. For those of you who know the story, Naomi and Elimelech, aristocracy among the Jewish people, the wealthy people who left in a time of famine where we're taught that they could have helped the Jewish people. And she comes back in ignominy, barefoot, poverty stricken, with no less but a shiksa, sorry for that term, but with her daughter-in-law, right, from Moab, which is a country that the Jewish people were told no convert can ever come from these people, Moab, they're not allowed to convert. So evil are they, right? That's a whole nother story. What was, their, what was their negative trait? That they did not do chesed, right? Any nation that uh, their credo is not to do kindness to other people, those kind of people can never belong to the Jewish people. So here Ruth is willing to leave all of that behind and follow Naomi, giving up everything, literally 
if you want a nullifying herself completely because she so wants to become part of this great people and live by the Torah's ideals. And so this is the kind of self-sacrifice and the kind of ability to um, get out of one's comfort zone on a very high level. But each one of us is called to do this in order to be able to be Mechabal the Torah. Okay, so it says, after this, it says, and they came to the Midbar, the Yavo Midbar Sinai. They came to Midbar Sinai. So what's this teaching us? Again, the idea of a Midbar, a desert, is a place of emptiness. It's a place of desolation. And the illusion is that before a person can be Mechabal the Torah, a person has to empty themselves. You have to empty yourself of your biases, of your predetermined views sometimes because of the society that you grew up in or the way you heard things growing up. And you have to re-question and come with an attitude of, I don't know, teach me. I'm emptying myself. I'm making myself like a midbar. The other idea of a midbar, of a lowly place, of a desert, is the idea that Torah is always compared to water. And water, of course, always flows from a high place to a low place. So when a person makes themselves low, the idea is that the Torah can reach them most effectively, okay? And again, the idea is that uh, the Torah can only rest upon somebody who has tremendous humility and anava, shiftless, right? From the word shafal, which is a valley, right? Makes themselves receptacle. Okay, so the next thing we have in this pasuk is... Um, the Yachanu Bamidbar, they camp together, the Yachanu, pay attention to that plural word, the Yachanu, which is correct grammatically. They meaning the whole Jewish people camp there. But then it changes to the sing singular. Instead of Vayichanu, it says Vayichan. Now this is where we have to ask, what do you mean? What happened? There's only one person now instead of the whole Jewish people? No, but rather what it's telling us is that the Jewish people were united. They were united, and as Rashi says, they were ishechad belevechad. They were like one keishechad. They were like one man with one heart. That one of the preconditions to being able to receive the Torah was total unity. And going back to this place of Rafidim, where they were weak, another explanation is that in Rafidim, they were consumed by machlokas, by disputes, and they were very disunified. Another ingredient for Amalek or our enemies to be able to attack, to know that this is the time when we can take those Jewish people down. As we know from Megillus Esther, when Haman goes in front of Ahasuerus and wants to, you know, plead 
for the king's help and success in eradicating the Jewish people, the way that he appeals to Ahasuerus is to say, there's a certain people in your kingdom, in your 127 provinces that are scattered all over the place. And the commentators there say that what he's telling Ahasuerus in code is the Jewish people are ununified. They're scattered. They're not one people anymore. In other words, they're weak. This is the time that we can destroy them. And all of the great dictators from the time of Amalek, even before back to Esau, Ishmael, those who hate the Jewish people, those who want to thwart our ability to realize Hashem's purpose in the world, they all know, they all know who we are better than we do. And they know exactly the ingredients necessary for them to be able to be, be victorious. As we learn from Yaakov and Esau, that when Yaakov is up, Esau is down like a seesaw. And when Esau is up, the Jewish people are down. And that's the way it's been throughout history. This rising and this falling. Right? This one affects them. The good in the world and the evil in the world are always having this seesaw, depending on the behavior of the Jewish people and our unity and our uh, attachment to Torah and recognition of what we're supposed to be doing for Hashem in this world so that he can realize for all of mankind uh, the utopia that we are really supposed to be living in under one God, right? Everybody together. So here it says, it changes to the singular again to tell us that unity only comes Again, back to our point where there's humility, where there's arrogance, and where there's my opinion and what I think, and you're wrong, and you're less than me, you're lower than me, there can only be discord. And what do I need, not what do you need? And, and lack of unity. But where there's anivas, where there's humility, then the Jewish people can um can um successfully be unified you know it's the same in marriage just to give you a mashal and of course it's a it's a good mashal because we know that when the jewish people come to har sinai there's a medrash that says hashem picked the mountain up over their heads right and there's different explanations of it. One of them is, is that he created a chuppah, that he made a chuppah on top of Harsina, because this was going to be the place where the Jewish people, B'nai Yisrael and Hashem, get married forever, make a covenant, right? The ketubah is the Torah, or sorry, the ring actually was the Torah, right? And in this relationship, as I've said in many classes, this is a relationship where there's no such thing as divorce, right? It doesn't matter how far away we run from Hashem. It doesn't matter as the Navi, as the prophets always said, how many adulterous relationships we Jews get swept up by, right? With whatever ism of the day is, 
whatever idol is the idol of that generation, which the Jews usually end up being the leaders of, it doesn't matter how many adulterous relationships we get involved in. Hashem is always there. The husband, the steadfast, loyal husband, waiting for his wife to come back. And of course, what creates those adulterous relationships for us is our inability to submit and subjugate ourselves. And with, that is a necessary ingredient in marriage. Marriages don't last when both parties are involved in this anochias. What's in it for me? What do I need? What are you doing for me? Right? It's the whole idea of marriage is to get rid of the anochias, to say, what can I do for you? I want to know what's important to you. And when both sides are doing that, then it's a beautiful and harmonious marriage when you get rid of this anochias. Otherwise, the relationship's going to be rocky when two people are pulling, right? It's always going to be rocky. You know, it reminds me of this beautiful vort by Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. He says, how do you cover 10 people with one talus? No, so let's just say, how do you cover 10 people with one blanket? So he says, the only way it will work is it, they, it, it will not work if 10 people are under this blanket trying to get warm and everybody's pulling the piece of the blanket to be on top of them. He says, the only way it works to have 10 people, I think it's under a talus, I'm not sure, is if every person is saying, is trying to cover the person next to them. If every person is trying to cover the person next to them, then you could fit 10 people under a blanket, right? I just, uh, I've been very involved in looking into some of my genealogy and I'm obsessed. I, I could bring it up here because it's a good example of an idol that the Jewish people worship. And I've been getting more and more information, but maybe I mentioned, and it's, I, I'm not proud of it by any, uh, by any chance, but by any, um, whatever, stretch. But um, my grandmother on my mother's side, whose name was Nechama Bronstein, was first cousins with Labela Bronstein, who was the famous or infamous Leon Trotsky. And what's amazing and what, what I'm learning, and actually this Shabbos, I was away in Cleveland, and my son was reading a book about Rav Shach, Rav Shach, for those of you who don't know, was one considered to be in Israel specifically, but all over the world, really one of the greatest Torah leaders of our generation. He died probably in his 90s, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And um, anyway, my son was reading this biography and he came over and said, wow, he, he, there was a whole page on Trotsky. And it was talking about how so many of these, that when Trotsky was first rising to power, he sought out, he sent all of his guys to yeshivas and they sought out the most brilliant genius yeshiva bachers because they knew if they could sweep them to their side of communism or Trotskyism as it was called, they would be invincible. So this Rav Shach as a young boy was they were they sent for him 
right? He was in some yeshiva in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. And they didn't only do this with him, but for everybody. And they explained in the book that the greatest and the brightest were swept away by this by this promise of utopia, this communism. And on the bottom, they had an excerpt where uh, in the home of Rabbi Isser Zalman Meltzer, who was one of the great Rebbeim of that time, the, the maid, who was a religious Jewish girl, came in one day and her eyes were all afire. And, you know, she was so excited. And they said, um, you know, what are you so, what, what happened? She said, oh, I just heard Trotsky speak. I heard him speaking for four hours. And they said, well, what did he say? What did he say? She said, I don't know what he said, but I'm willing to join. You know, I want to join up. And just one other famous story, a, a story of Rav Kahanaman, who was the um, Rosh Yeshiva of the Panovich Yeshiva in Israel, which is like the Harvard Yeshiva of Yeshivas. He tells a story that when he was a young man in, the, in, in Russia, he was once standing in the square, in Red Square, and Trotsky was speaking. And he was totally mesmerized. And he says that he used to tell this story to his uh, yeshiva buckers in, in, in Panovich. He said, you know, all of a sudden, after listening to Trotsky for hours and hours, I looked at my watch and I saw that it was time to daven mincha. And after that, he paused and he said, Rabosai, I'm just telling you, if not for that mincha, I would have been a communist. So just an example of the power of the idols that the Jewish people, and of course, who could blame them, right? In some ways, they, the Jewish people, in a sense, in, the, in those days, if you look at it, the young people had decided that Mashiach wasn't coming, you know, that their boobies and their parents, who, as my bubby would say, were always crying. They were crying. They were crying in shul. They were crying... Because listen, it was a good week. It was a good month if your village didn't get burned down. It was a good month, as I'm finding out so many of my, I didn't even know, but I'm named after somebody who was buried alive, right, in, in, in the town where they came from. I'm finding out my mother was named by for my Bubby's brother, who was stoned on Yom Kippur on his way to visit his parents. His wife gave birth the very next day, 19 and 20 years old. And he was left to bleed in a field to death. You know, I'm learning all of these stories. So the young people of those days were desperate and felt that this Judaism and this promise of Mashiach wasn't, wasn't coming quickly enough. And all of this crying and all of this praying and everything else wasn't working. So you can imagine how Trotsky and communism and this idea that if we were all just human beings and there weren't separations and it wasn't about religion, et cetera, the John Lennon song, right? Very communistic in its visions. Um, imagine all the people, imagine no religion, imagine no countries, imagine this was the ideology that was sweeping through that day. But again, um, you know, marriage is something that one needs to submit themselves to and make themselves smaller if it's going to be a good relationship. 
So from this Pasuk, ladies, we take away a lot of ideas. And there's a reason, again, that we're told where they came from, Rafidim. They came from a place of weakness, weakness in Torah, weakness in terms of contentiousness with each other, disunity. And they had to travel away from that. They had to strengthen themselves in Torah, in humility, which is, again, the, the prerequisite for being able to be Mechabal the Torah. And then they were able to travel to, Mount, to, to the Midbar, again, because they made themselves into a Midbar. And it was only by making themselves into a Midbar that when they camped opposite Harsinai, preparing to receive the Torah, the word used again is singular, because it was only by making themselves smaller, and only when we make ourselves smaller, that we're able to see the other person. We're able to realize that, you know, our bodies that separate us are just illusions. They're the illusion of separateness, the physical boundaries. But if we go deeper, if we make ourselves smaller in terms of our physical selves, right? Me, 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 which is the voice of the body. And we're able to say you, which is the voice of the soul. What do you need? What can I do for you? How can I make you happy? Right? Then the barriers that exist between people and look like they're there physically are really an illusion. Because as we know, the Jewish people are one body and one soul. And that's the way we have to see it. So what small acts can we do? What kind of mysterious nefesh is needed in order to be able to be Makabal the Torah? What are some small acts of sacrifice? So it can be as simple as not saying that juicy piece of gossip, right? I want to talk about somebody. I want to sound like a know-it-all. I want to say, oh, yeah, and I knew that I know this and I know that. And send along some juicy piece of information. But I hold myself back from doing it or from saying a negative word or from criticizing another person. And instead, I turn it into a compliment. Or I notice my husband or whoever is important in my life, I catch them doing something good instead of my usual harping on what they're doing wrong. Okay? These are ways of literally killing yourself. You know, killing that part of you, that reflex response that wants to be on automatum, on automatic, and say and do things the way I always do. But when we just in a very small way stop ourselves or turn the negative into positive, we're becoming more other-centered. We're getting rid of the I, the anochias, you know? what I need, how I need you to be different. And we're focusing on the other person's goodness, okay? Helping somebody, helping somebody physically, you know, sometimes it's not always easy. How about when it's not convenient and it, it's gonna, you know, mess up your schedule or you're gonna have to give something else up. Like you were planning to do something enjoyable for yourself, but you give that up for the sake of another person. That's called killing yourself. That's called getting out of your comfort zone. 
That's called making yourself smaller, the I, and making the other person bigger, right? Or keeping quiet and not having the last word. Again, another example of that. You know, going out of your way for somebody who you don't particularly like or isn't necessarily your type or you don't find so easy to be with, but giving them your time and your patience, right? These are all ways that we can prepare ourselves to be able to come to a place of greater shiftless, of greater anivus, which is the root of all good traits. Root of all good character development begins with making ourselves smaller and making the other person bigger. Now, again, I'm talking about normal people in normal situations. Normal meaning difficult people like we're difficult sometimes, right? I'm not talking about, you know, making yourself into a shmata and letting yourself be walked all over and allowing abusive people to take advantage of you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about fighting the urge to put yourself in the spotlight, make yourself most important in a way that makes you more physical and less spiritually developed, right? It gives into the voice of the body, which as Robertson Heller once explained, is the voice of taking, right? Back to the infant with the hands, give me, give me, give me, right? As opposed to the voice of the soul, which is always the voice of giving. Okay, thank you so much, ladies, and may you have much success. May we all have much success in this slow process, but worthwhile one of, you know, making ourselves smaller so that we can really and truly be bigger by bringing more Torah into our lives and more of the behaviors that the Torah expects from us, not only between ourselves and other people, which of course is one side of the tablets, but also realize that being other-centered means being other, also means um, understanding that there are things that Hashem also needs from us and wants from us. And that also requires other-centeredness, right? That it's important to Hashem that we do what he needs us to do so that it'll be good for the Jewish people It'll be good for ourselves in our own personal lives, and it will be good for the world at large, which is the ultimate purpose for all of, you know, for the Jewish people receiving the Torah in the first place. Okay, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Deborah. Feel better. Thank you so much. Feel better. Question. Yes, question. So um, do you want to turn it off? Whatever you want. Okay, I'll turn it off.